Back in 2006, a Canadian First Nations group, the Gitkasan, went to Yunnan, China to participate in a cultural minority conference. Here they met a Chinese indigenous group and they interacted with them. And some sort of deep cultural synergy must have taken place in this encounter between these two very similar cultural groups. Because what happened was the following. Suddenly, the American raven trickster returned to his people. During some sort of procession through Yunnan, uh, this spirit came and possessed one of these mosque dancers and made fun of a Chinese police officer and behaved in the generally disorder disorderly trickster fashion. That's characteristic of Raven. Now this event reopened the mask-making tradition that these Gitkasan people had been struggling to, to keep alive. Dreams started returning with messages about how to make these masks. But uh, these masks were now more contemporary in their form. They reflected not only traditional lifestyle, one of them was called camera. This meeting with other as a motor for your own cultural renewal is what I've tried to understand with the pre-Christian Scandinavian concept of finfara or finfaring. <clears throat> Faring to the Sami, the Finns, which in medieval Norwegian law was prohibited, uh, apparently because people did it in order to acquire animist knowledge. So this is another video in a little series of reflection that I've shared on the overall topic of cultural exchange. The first video uh, was about general notions of cultural exchange and it's, it's important to any human culture but specifically to traditional ways of knowing or animism. In the second video I tried uh, to address the important current topic of cultural appropriation. The fact that cultural exchange can sometimes become a vessel for abusive relating between groups. Uh, the third video, uh, I went to Northern Norway and spoke with the Sami man uh, to Finnmark. And actually, I did a Finfaring uh, who has done a Finfaring of his own to South America in order to learn shamanism. And this video here is where I'm talking about my own actual Finfaring, which, like Jongles Svani in the last video went to South America, but to a very different corner of that continent. But before you continue watching this video here, I really recommend that you uh, watch the, the other videos in this uh, little cultural exchange series here. Just to prep you a little bit on the topic of uh, traditional culture and cultural exchange and how to think about the ethics particularly on cultural exchange. So this reflection here is actually a popularized version of a weird academic article that I've written titled Finfara, where I reflect on my own path 
And I've shown the article to a number of people and sometimes it has actually had really an impact, this weird little article. For instance, my friendship with uh, Tyson Juncker-Porter started because I printed the article and sent it to him with the mail and he really loved it. And I believe that he's using the concept Finfara in his coming book, uh, Right Story, Wrong Story. I actually think that many people in this globalized world have some interface with finfaring at some level, like reflecting on your own own culture based on some sort of encounter with an, another culture. And this finfaring stage, you could say, of our age is also related with this cultural dialogue where many indigenous voices today are encouraging people, perhaps particularly people from colonizer groups, that we should start thinking in traditional animist ways about our own, uh, our own culture. It's a, it's a general encouragement that, that is sort of in cultural spaces today. And finfaring is in a sense a way of starting to realize that. Actually listening to this request for cultural self-reflection that many cultural, uh, col that many colonized peoples are sometimes voicing. It is bringing someone else's perspective home on your own cultural background. It is the opposite of being what the Eddie poetry calls homish, heimskirt, meaning a simpleton, being a simpleton. I did the finfaring uh, in a way that has actually become foundational to my development of Nordic traditional knowledge as an animist relation, as a, as a project of thinking and practice. Um, and as it will, will probably not come to a particularly big surprise to followers, followers of this channel, my finfaring, that interaction with other that has guided me in starting to think with my own cultural background, went into Afro-diasporic Orisha Nkisi religion, specifically to the Brazilian form Candomblé that I also studied and that I've interacted with for a large portion of my life and whose knowledge keepers have contributed vitally to how I understand culture and particularly also how I understand my own culture. In, in, in effect, this is underlying how I think about my, my own culture. But in order to get this, um, you'll have to get a little bit of my own background uh, as well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, talking about myself, um, some people, just have a bit more kind of religiosity spilled into them than others. And that's just the way humans are. And I have a relatively good spill of religiosity, considering that I actually had a fairly secular upbringing. Um, I was, however, always attracted to what you could call roots religion or earth-focused religion. I grew up with a grandmother who was reading these little books for me about Norse mythology. Uh, that side of my family belongs to a kind of Christianity called Grundvedianism, for which the old Norse myth and all that kind of Nordic heritage is like the Old Testament of our people. And I was probably 13, 14 years when I read The Mists of Avalon, and I deeply felt, I remember, like the loss of this pagan religion that was described in such touching way in this book. Um, 
In those days, youngsters could still read books because they didn't have their minds messed up by social media. Around this time, I also got this book here, which is called The Witch's Manual. Uh, it's, it, today, it's kind of a classic in, in, in sort of Danish paganism. So I was kind of attracted to these things uh, from my childhood on, basically. And when I was in my teens, I started actually almost developing a personal kind of heathendom-ish uh, thing. Uh, this here is a cult figure of Thor that I made when I was perhaps 16 years. Um, in that age, I expressed myself uh, a lot through making these sort of clay figures. and you know. So I have all these things hanging around like a fire giant lamp or a hippie solar symbol and so on. So when I got a little bit older still, I doubled my study of history of religions by exploring intellectual occultism. Some of the students of history of religions uh, back in the 90s who were prone to read and think uh, more than what they were told to read and think involved in studying this uh, Danish occultist uh, named Erwin Neutzke Wolf, whose writing uh, became a bit of a a counterculture, anti-racist actually, which at the time was not as widely canonical as it is today. So, uh, and, and this, by the way, was also before academic animism became a thing and started dominating or started being in academic discourses. So in this milieu, we were studying stuff like Nordic religion and Kabbalah and these things. But the realization started growing that stuff like the Orisha gods from West Africa were perhaps exactly what we were looking for. A contemporary, inclusive, powerful, queer matriarchal polytheism. What was not to like, we thought. So uh, Brazilian Candomblé started growing among us. Uh, this was also before identitarianism became so strong that cross-cultural uh, inspiration was almost made illegitimate. So these uh, Orisha religions, they actually tend to spread through these sort of stepping stone worldviews. And though there are millions of white people today in these religions, uh, I think perhaps internet spaces would tend to focus on the fact that it's not always done in respectful ways. Uh, European occultists sometimes have a bit of an entitlement attitude where you can just play around with whatever stuff you can think of, you know. But of course, it's also sometimes done with, you know, exactly the right kind of humility and dedication, which is what we've been striving to do, of course. Um, for instance, learning through relation from an initiatory line of knowledge transmission, uh, that is the foundation of a uh, respectful approach to other culture. And yeah, that's what we're doing. We're in an initiatory line. But still, I've been very cautious talking about my own finfaring into candomblé because you also have to take into account that, you know, the history of oppression have created kinds of emotional recoil. So you need to tread carefully. But today my evaluation is that it's important to get this story out, basically, to have it told because some of the people who have seen that little article there, they've deemed it to be important. Uh, we are entering total apocalypse at an ever uh, accelerating speed. As I'm making this video, ashes and smoke reaches Scandinavia from Canada, which is burning on a level where they say that the world wildfire doesn't apply anymore. 
So yeah, like Jungle Swanee, the Sami Shaman that I spoke about, spoke to in the other video, uh, I went to South America. He went to learn shamanism, or how shamanism works, and I went to learn how polytheism works. The Afro-diasporic Orisha polytheisms, like for instance Brazilian Candomblé, they can be seen as a big, growing, dynamic world religion. Uh, there was a period in the Zeros where Santeria was the fastest, fastest growing religion in the US. There's a voodoo group in Norway. There's a Candomblé in Berlin. There's loads in Southern Europe and all over North America. And uh, there's a voodoo temple in Montreal. And in personal conversations, many Eurodescendant pagans of different sorts have uh, told me that they, they are actually working with some Afro-diasporic technologies. Uh, so it's already a little bit of a thing, and I've been surprised to find that there are actually several in Scandinavia uh, thinking along, along these sort of lines. And it shouldn't actually be that surprising, because these religions are incredibly connective to begin with. Deities re regularly cross over cultural lines, right? For instance, so I went and lived in Brazil uh, three times actually, and particularly last time I was there, I was given the privilege of uh, two candomblé houses sharing their amazing knowledge with me about how to create almost like a an animist safe space in, in modernity. Um, and that is the way of thinking that has become an important underlying kind of way of reflecting in, in this channel. You could say I'm basically trying to think about my own cultural history in the same way as a candomblé priestess think about their cultural heritage. I think that the genius of Afro-descendant religions uh, springs from those competences that they have built these counter-modern spaces because they were faced with a very harsh oppression. And the, in these spaces, their traditional animist technologies uh, have been able to survive with an incredible level of uh, efficacy. And these religions, they seem very akin actually to European polytheisms, for instance, Nordic or Hellenic polytheisms. Um, there are these Orisha deities or Nkisi deities, and they're a kind of other than human that are very similar to what you find in European uh, pre-Christian religions. In some cases, there even seems to be parallels between major deities. And Candomblé, this Afro-Basilian form, is a contemporary, dynamic polytheism, which is practiced by scholars and pop stars and hairdressers and school teachers and Beyonce, I believe, has actually gone through Santeria initiation. Uh, it seems very close to explicit in some of her texts. So these religions uh, have always struck me as a really good bid for how an Asavania devotion might have looked if it had survived all the way until today. So the story of this little ritual group uh, was that some of these guys who had been working on spiritual worldviews and technologies their entire life and learning Hebrew and whatnot, they got initiated in Brazil. Uh, and at this point, 
we were mostly just doing candomblé in this line of initiation that goes back to the famous candomblé priest called Jean-Signor d'Agomea, the founder of the Bachi Folia House. Uh, and this is a line of initiation that has actually shifted its cultural affiliation like a couple of times in the last uh, century. Uh, and, and that's uh, like between different ethnic, uh, ethnic identities, basically. And this is actually fairly normal in Candomblé because it is a non-nationalist leaning mode of spirituality. So peoples are still working sometimes in these extremely sort of cross-cultural ways between identifications of different cultural groups. I know a rather traditionalist uh, Brazilian uh, Maiti Santo, a high priestess, and her house has, over two generations, it has modulated from being Bantu to being Yoruba, and it will become Dahomey in, in the next generation. Uh, and these are different cultural groups in Africa, and they're rather different. And uh, yeah, in Candomblé, they're called nations or nations. So what happened in this particular little group uh, in Denmark is that it started modulating basically towards Nordic. This friend of mine who later became my initiator, uh, he's a guy with some Inuit background actually, and he started developing a, uh, a ritual that uh, con uh, establishes or consolidates relation to a personal patron spirit. What in the Nordic world would be called a fylgia perhaps, or in the Yoruba an ori. And a group of people around him started doing that. And that was actually when this little ritual group started taking shape. Um, and, it w and as it was taking shape, the Nordic motifs, they started coming back into people's dreams and visions. A little bit like it had happened to those Gitkesan people in, in uh, Canada. It was as if like the Nordic ecology of other than humans was waking up and saying, hey, can't we be at the party at all? <laughs> so, uh, and yeah, but, but I particularly, in the beginning, I didn't regard this as particularly viable. I wasn't particularly in love with the whole nationalism ah, complex of Nordic things. I'm, I thought it was best to just skip past by that whole thing since I've realized that actually facing that whole thing, that's actually where the where we really become engaged in an intersectional decolonizing process, but that's a different story. At, at this point, I was a little bit like, why, why would we want to involve with that? But I was one of the people who really started having these experiences, um, particularly after I went through these initiatory or these initial uh, rituals. I had a very strong and very intensely symbolic dream that clearly indicated that I was not supposed to be initiated to Oshasi, the Yoruba god of hunting, which I thought at the time, but to Odin. To Odin. <laughs> uh, now, at the time, that was confusing to me because I was rather steeped in the Orisha conceptualization. And uh, also, I'm not sure that I understood at the time how inherently connective these knowledge systems are. Uh, but this was the direction that these things took. Uh, I went to Brazil and I'd thought that I'd probably end up being initiated to a chassis. But instead, like my dreams started flowing over with ritual directions and runes and all these kind of stuff that was pointing to 
the Nordic side of things and to Odin. So both myself and my friend who later initiated me we uh, and who started the group, we started collecting all this information that we were being given about this uh, initiation. And of course there's a lot of this that I can't talk about because it's secret. Um, these technologies, they're about creating a space of non-modern reality and that requires limits on communication. Now, most of the people who talk about closed culture online, they don't really know what they're talking about, actually. Um, Candomblé is not a closed culture per se. Candomblisters are generally more than happy to welcome people into their practice. But, uh, so the idea of closeness, it often figures as a bit, I think it's, it's an uh, uh, it's a nationalist misconception, basically, that cultures are supposed to be these enclosed systems, right? Um, but there are systems inside Candomblé that are very restrictive on communication. That is closeness. So there are things you can say and there are things you can't say. And it's because there are kinds of knowledge that cannot just be disseminated and uh, initiation technology, which is the core of relation making, that certainly not certainly is not stuff you can talk about directly. But I can talk about the frame. I can talk around it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Candomblé initiation uh, makes a person into a bride, a yawo uh, of a deity, and this counts for any gender or sexuality, which is why heteronormative so social values. Uh, sometimes make this a problem, for instance, for heterosexual men. Like once the Nordic practice of seder uh, initiation is feminizing. So in my case, there was also the complication that it was a Nordic deity that wanted me for initiation. And though a sizable chunk of the best Elder Edda material in my view, actually relates to Odinic initiation, the fact still remains that this is nowhere near comparable to the necessary mass of ritual knowledge and competence that you need in order to perform uh, an actual uh, initiation. It's nowhere near enough. You sometimes hear, I don't know, scholars or heathens saying that there's far sufficient uh, knowledge uh, present to uh, create contemporary uh, also true and so on. And I think it's because most of them never saw the inside of an effective, fully developed ritual technology. There is nowhere near enough. And this also means that, you know, for instance, the people who say, yeah, white people should just go and find their own stuff. Yeah, that's easy to you to say, but for you to say, but it's actually not possible because there is material, but there's not enough, for instance, to create uh, an initiation. Uh, it took us around two years to prepare my initiation. This, so the religious coding language of the ritual technology was defined and informed by many of these Udenic motives and practices that had appeared through dreams. Um, though it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't possible to include all of them because too much material had been coming. And also because uh, Candomblé technology has its own logic and uh, that has to be respected. You can't just slam stuff or imagine stuff onto it like that. Initiation is a long and ordeal dense process of ritual seclusion. For me, uh, the core ritual that made me into a Musenza priest of Odin 
was a three weeks long uh, period of ritual seclusion, uh, followed by a long period of different taboos. Some of them are lifelong. Uh, the, if, if you look at the first Nordic Animism video that I made on this channel, it was a support statement for the Standing Rock start, struggle. And you can see that I'm still wearing all white, actually. And uh, that was because I was still in, in, in uh, taboo. Uh, walking backwards through doors, wearing all white, you know, I, my, my colleagues in Uppsala, they were a little bit like, okay, if they'd been Danish and not polite Swedish people, I think they'd probably said, you're crazy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's this kind of, of, of practice is, is, is difficult. It doesn't fit very well in Northern Europe. So, through my initiation, uh, Odin is identified with a Bantu African deity, an Inkisi. And you can see that in two ways. I guess, you know, I mean, you can see it as Odin identifying with an Inkisi in order to be able to manifest, or uh, you can see that, that the Inkisi is identifying with Odin in order to become local to this group in this place. Or perhaps they just merge, which, by the way, is totally not uncommon in Afro-Atlantic religiosities, where gods are, at the same time, they're pre-existing uh, beings, but humans have very much have agency in embodying them and calling them into, re shaping them into reality, shaping them into culture, even teaching them how to be themselves, actually. Uh, Brazilian deities, they can cross over between what we would call different religions, like from spiritism and into Umbanda and into one modality of Candomblé and into another and so on. It, we would tend to see this as secluded religions, but to, to the people inside these technologies, they're more like reservoirs of tools that you can do. And deities often can cross between them and sh change and all that. So, uh, and they can also merge. They can identify or they can produce crossover manifestations in all kinds of ways. So, of course, the concrete technology that accomplishes this is a deluge of concrete details that activate these Odinic motifs into the Candomblé technology and so on. And as the object of this uh, initiation, I'm in the dark about uh, most of it. And most of what I know is secret. But as one exoteric, like one open example, I can, uh, I can mention bead strings that mark the identity of Inkisi and uh, Orisha deities. So these deities have colors as a primary marker of their identity. White and crimson mark Shango, yellow transparent mark Oshun, and so on. And I had spent quite some time sort of searching my dreams for answers on exactly what kind of color identification Odin would like, but I didn't receive a particularly clear answer. So the color of the corresponding Orisha deity is Oshala, that's white. And uh, the specific manifestation is white interspersed with light blue. And Odin seems to be associated with the color blah, which is blue or black, which actually has similar associations as the white in the African cosmology. So the end result uh, became uh, a version where uh, the Inkisi Odin is marked with beads that are white and dark blue. Uh, 
So this is just one little open example. Uh, but of course, uh, the, uh, this practice of, of uh, devotion to Odin has only taken some first steps. And more Nordic deities have started to manifest in this little group. Primarily my close friend, the tattooist Uffe Berndt, who like me has actually been initiated to an, to an Asa Nkisi uh, form of the god Tyr. So this is an example of how majority people today can use a fin-faring strategy in order to recover ancestral kinds of connectivity. I think that fin-faring is a viable possibility today, but it has to stay clear of tourism, right? Reading a couple of books and walking around in some botanicas in New Orleans or drinking ayahuasca with some hippies, that is not finfaring. Jung Lesvani, the Sami guy that I interviewed about his trip to South America, he was in direct apprenticeship for five to six years. Now that alone corresponds to an MA degree at least. At least. The guy who initiated me, I would say he has knowledge on the level of a, like a tenured university professor, something like that. So it has to stay very serious and very respectful. And there are people, for instance, who will approach African traditional religion in ways that don't deserve being labeled finfaring. They just accumulate, you know, initiation titles and affiliations all over the place as if it's trophy hunting. So that does exist. A line of knowledge transmission and knowledge tradition like the one that I've had the privilege to become a part of that demands a very high level of respect and humility. Like I have one title as a Musensa initiate and that's enough. That's enough. In fact, it's more than enough. I can explore this for, uh, for the rest of my life, what that means and what that is, without ever becoming even high level in it. So I encourage an unambiguous respect for uh, lines of initiation and traditions of knowledge. Um, learning from other cultural spaces have to rest on personal relation through which knowledge is transferred and that binds you back into a, a uh, tradition of initiation and it also lends legitimacy to what you're doing. But I also think that, as I've been saying in other videos, that it's important to stand on that finfaring is possible in ethically legitimate ways because a real effective relational technology of this kind if you if you ask me it can't just be invented out of whole cloth not if you want to be serious about it you can read the Eddas and the old you can learn old Norse and study every single piece of archaeology but if the objective is initiation then it's not enough it's not enough if you have a Nordic god like the hunter forest god uh, Ullr and there is only a handful of mentions and a little bit of flimsy archaeology, you know. But if you go and look at other culture who have similar but genealogically unrelated figures like Rama in India or Ushasi in Brazil, then there will be a, a complex of practice that can make relating possible. That, for instance, could make an initiation possible. Of course, you can pray to Ullur and you can have a little figure and so on, but you cannot initiate a priest to him. Uh, at least not in my view. 
I think that the fact of my initiation uh, suggests a couple of perspectives, not only on contemporary reclaiming of Nordic uh, religiosity, but general attempts at restoring ancestral forms of uh, relating. Um, exactly what we've been doing has also been done by an indigenous uh, group called the Patasho in Brazil, who have been leaning towards uh, Afro-Brazilian traditions as a, uh, technologies to recreate their own ancestrality. So a creolization, finfaring approach is indeed possible as an alternative to you know, museum or uh, reenactment approaches or academic approaches or New Age uh, approaches or whatever it is, you know, it it is possible to move the Erciarvania deities into a high-intensity trans technology, but obviously this also contains problems. You know, I mean, can I call myself a heathen? I'm not really sure. Perhaps you know, maybe everybody, anybody who isn't a Christian can, from some perspective, be called a heathen. Uh, but on the other hand, I am a representative of an ancient tradition. Uh, where this sort of modulating between cultural identifications is not unheard of at all. It's almost as if finfaring is so inherent to candomblé that the concept isn't really necessary because it's so deeply connected to begin with. So yeah, I specifically recommend finfaring into Afro-diasporic religions like Santeria, Voodoo, candomblé. These religions are not closed uh, which some might want to try to make you believe. They're very much open, uh, but they're closed elements in them, and that needs to be approached with unflinching respect, of course. These religions have grown into addressing our time, right? They, they, they are very much part of the modern, modern world. They response to the modern world in their cre creating these animist safe spaces and the content of these religions is very, very aligned with your descendant polytheisms like Nordic or Hellenic. They're accessible. Like many of the worldviews that seem attractive to people today, they can be very, very difficult to approach. Just to learn the, the appropriate language can be very difficult. But the Afro-diasporic religions, to a large extent, they play out in languages and in spaces that you can approach. So my Finfara uh, has become foundational to, to what I'm doing on this channel. I'm trying to voice reflections on Nordic cultural history that are informed by this process, informed by uh, uh, the perspectives that I've been given and, uh, and so on. So I'm basically trying to think about cultural history in a way that's similar to how Afro-Brazilian condomblistas think about theirs. In their coping with extreme oppression, these Afro-descended people have developed these ways of thinking uh, by which they can maintain effective uh, animist reality, basically, on the conditions of modernity. So when we get through this sort of over-identitarian space that we're in right now, uh, then I think that this counter-modernity thinking and practice will certainly earn these people uh, a core place in cultural history. I think that in a hundred years we will think about the Yoruba and the Bantu as primary cultural originators 
of those trends that defined world history as, like, as vital contributors to this decolonial time that so many of us are now trying to open paths into. But of course, that uh, is, is based on listening to them in the first place and, and trying to incorporate this knowledge in uh, majority populations as well. Thanks for listening and see you around.